Well, this is it. Episode one of the Ex Nihilo Health Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Williams. Very excited that you're here. Episode one, guys. I can't believe it. I, I, I can't believe it. It's, it's finally here. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Super excited to put this together. I've got a real special guest here for you today. His name's Dan Cirillo. Dan actually is a friend of mine. He was a trainer of mine, a CrossFit trainer, uh, for about two years while I played in the NFL with the Cleveland Browns and the Seattle Seahawks. Um, Dan Cirillo is a certified U.S. Navy Master Training Specialist, having over 14 years of active duty, of which 13 years were spent within the Naval Special Warfare Commands Unit. Be careful, guys. This is a mouthful of information. This guy's done it all. He served as both a SEAL operator and basic underwater demolition SEAL and special operations master training specialist instructor during his military career. He deployed numerous times in support of both Operation Iraqi and Enduring Freedom and conducted over 300 direct action missions. After leaving the military, Dan continued government service until he was hired in 2007 by a high net worth family, a hint hint, in the Pacific Northwest to help form an executive protection detail uh, for Vulcan Inc. Dan opened CrossFit Bellevue, the gym I trained at, in 2008 with his idea of specializing in youth athletic training and pre-special operations training. Dan continues to consult for high school and college football programs all over the United States for high, worth, high net worth families all over the world on both fitness and security matters. Dan is also one of the lead coaches for Seal Fit's Kokoro Camp and a 20-time challenge and founder of Turning Steel, the ultimate Seal Fit adventure. Dan specializes in teaching his clients and players about the fundamentals of fitness and the physical and mental toughness that goes along with it. Dan is also a heck of a guy. I should add that as well. So we're, we've got an incredible show coming up for you. This man is, is well decorated and he's got some great things to say. Before we get into that, just briefly, this this podcast is going to be a lot different than maybe some of the other podcasts you might have come across. Uh, Ex Nihilo is all about building value for people, helping them get the most out of themselves, both mentally uh, and physically, but as well as spiritually. And so you're going to have a variety of guests on. We're going to have ex-NFL athletes, current NFL athletes. Uh, we're going to have military. We're going to have nutritionists. We're going to have pastors. We're going to have uh essential oils gurus. We've got it all kind of uh, in this. Anything falls underneath getting better. And, and so Ex Nihilo is all about going back to the garden, right? Becoming who you were created to be before the fall of man. And so I, I think that so many different people have some stuff to offer. And so Dan is, is no exception there. And so, um, all right, without further delay, here's Dan Cirillo with CrossFit Bellevue. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Ex Nihilo podcast. We're here with Dan Cirillo. Uh, Dan, uh, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Hey, so Dan, I don't know if you know this. I don't think I told you this pre-show, but you're actually going to be guest one of the Ex Nihilo podcast. We're going to have a few of you guys recorded, but you're going to be first. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, awesome. <laughs> That's the first for me. <laughs> I'm just kidding with you. Well, usually, I'm the usually I'm the last guy they want to podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. So the background between you and I, you know, obviously you trained me for about two years out in Bellevue at your gym. Um, a little bit different. I saw that you had trained Matt Hasselback a few years earlier, and uh, you did some really cool stuff with him on the rings, introducing some of the CrossFit type stuff into NFL. So that was that was pretty unique. And so I thought, well, why not? 
we met through a mutual, you know, kind of a friend, and I thought, well, why not give this guy a shot? And I brought, you know, my buddy in, Nathan Enderly, in on it, and, you know, you trained us for a couple of years and re- really got a lot out of it and, and in terms of my back surgery and all that. So uh, I thought you'd be an excellent guest, um, first guest, rather, to, to, to be on the show. So thanks for coming on. Um, first, why don't we start this way? Why don't you give me just kind of a little bit of a background of, you know, you know what you're about. You know, you're obviously an ex-Navy SEAL. Give me a little background on your Navy SEAL and then your transition a little bit into the CrossFit business. Yeah, so, you know, from a young age, I've always been involved in athletics. You know, my father got me into wrestling and football, like, you know, most. And uh, I actually got was able to compete wrestling, you know, pretty high level at a young age. And then we had the opportunity to play for, you know, one of the most outstanding football teams ever with Emmett Smith. You know, I was a freshman. He was a senior, so it didn't really count. But played with his two younger brothers who were great. And we had a great program there. And I got discovered, in, you know, in weightlifting there with just great coaching. And, and from that point, I've always just been involved in you know, trying to become a college athlete, you know, you learn real quick that you're not, uh, you know, an NFL football player when you get to college, no matter how good you are in high school. And uh, I kind of got lost in college for a little bit, you know, trying to play college football. And next thing I know, my girlfriend of all people took me to see a movie, Navy SEALs. And I had read a couple of books and, uh, you know, push come to shove, went to a party one night and things didn't go the way they're supposed to and did some stupid things. And, uh, the next Monday I was at the recruiting office and I said, you know, I need to change my life. And, I want to become a Navy SEAL, and uh, the guy kind of laughed at me, obviously, because I hadn't been working out as hard as I should have been. Didn't look the didn't look the part, uh, which I never do, obviously. Um, and I just kind of flipped a switch in me that that's what I wanted to do, and I started training. And I met a really great man named Don Cope, who said, "You got to get up at five in the morning. You got to train like a demon. You got to run ten miles. You got to do a thousand push-ups, thousand flutter kicks, etc." And I did it. And what was funny is I didn't have a job. So I still get up at five in the morning and stuff. And uh, <laughs> I didn't really have a job. And I was like, man, this is, this is terrible. But I did. Um, and next thing you know, I really fell in love with how hard I could push myself. And what I really fell in love with is, is was how strong I got. You know, because, you know, lifting weights is awesome. But I got really into calisthenics. But how fast I got running. Like I could – I literally felt – freedom when I ran fast and I could just run super fast and I was good at it. And then I got good at swimming and it all kind of fell in place like as it needed to. And next thing you know, I was at SEAL training and, uh, I found out quickly again that, Hey, wow, there's, there's a different caliber athlete out there. You know, you show up to, to, to buds and you think you're this Billy, you know, Billy, uh, bad guy. And you're there with Olympians. You're there with world-class athletes. And, you know, you go from, uh, the guy who wins every single run to a guy who's barely middle of the pack. And, you know, as the weeks wow. go by, you're, you're really digging in, you're digging deep because you're the big thing about buds isn't so much how hard it is. It's very hard, but how long do you go before you start breaking? And that's, that's the secret of people don't really understand people, you know, they understand buds, people quit, et cetera, but really people break and you just, you just see guys like their legs just break. You run so much, you're so much pounding on you. And next thing you know, you're, you're sort of class 174 and you're down to 30 some odd guys and. And I went in Hell Week of 37 guys. I was boat crew. I started at Buds at Boat Crew 15. I finished Hell Week in Boat Crew 3. So that many wow. guys left. And uh, in Buds, you quickly find out that it's not being good at one thing. It's being good at everything. Like you just have to be good at every single thing because each week you take a major test. And each week there's guys who fail and they go away. And uh, it all comes to be you know, just being calm and solving problems under pressure, You know, making, learning how to I, – I, always, I came up with this term a long time ago finding calmness and chaos. And if you have the ability to find calmness and chaos, you're able to solve a lot of unique problems. And what I've found is that 
it, had I used that philosophy in my athletic career, I think I would have been played at a much higher level um, yeah. because there was times where I lost my cool, I lost my I lost my grasp on what was going on. And as it, in buds, I learned how to just become calm and let the situation flow and fix problems as they occurred instead of fighting problems. And it was just a real eye opener and you know, went on to have a long SEAL career, 15 years, and uh, got out and, uh, you know, did some security work for a while uh, and then decided to open up my gym. You know, it was a passion I wanted to give back and I wanted to train kids. And uh, next thing you know, it kind of fell on the line that I started training adults and had, you know, uh, Matt Hasselback walk in and then you go, you walk in, Justin Forsett, you know, the group you guys trained with. And it just became a passion for it, you know, so. So. Okay, let's go back to calmness and chaos because that's what caught me. Uh, you know, you're going through the Navy SEALs. What what in the heck inspires you? A- answer me this question: How many people enter buds, and how many people actually graduate? So, an average buds class is between 170 guys, 220 guys, uh, depending on what type of year they're having. So, the more guys that get out of the teams, the more influx of students they push through buds. So when I went through BUDS, there was only four classes per year. And then by the time my, after my first platoon, there were six classes a year. So it just depends on how many guys are getting in and coming out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, during the war, they were getting up to like seven, eight classes a year because how many guys are getting wounded? You know, uh, guys always hear about how many people get killed in the SEAL teams, which is really low compared to everybody else. But we also have a lot of guys get wounded. You know, we have the best gear, best training, et cetera, but still guys get hurt. So you have to replace those guys. Right. So, you know, um, in buds, learning how to have calmness and chaos was just one of those things where I uh, I saw guys fr- freaking out. I saw guys, you know, you know, during you have a lot of evolutions where you're really pushed to your limits in the water. One evolution is called the beehive, where every student is thrown in the, into the pool, the deep end. You know, you're fully clothed, boots on, etc. And all the and you have you know roughly twenty to thirty instructors surrounding you. And they're you know, you make the beehive tighter. So guys are drowning and they're pushing you, they're dunking you, they're panicking. And the whole purpose of the exercise is to teach you to become calm, let yourself get pushed down, and then swim to the edge. Catch a breath of air, and then the thing starts all over you. And it lasts, you know, 20, 30 minutes, and then suddenly it stops. And you're told, All right, go into your Navy um, rescue procedures, which are to take your pants off, you know, tie a knot in each leg and learn how to float and but by then, you get guys who are just flipped out, and they're just done, man. They're like, I'm out of here. And that was a really defining factor because that's your second day of training, I believe. It was a really defining factor for me because I looked around, and I saw guys who, you know, you take your PST, your physical screening test, your very first day, and I saw guys who just completely destroyed me on that test quitting. And I was like, wow, that was hard, but I didn't think it was that hard. Like I expected buds every day to be like hell week. And that's my mental preparation was like when we got done the first day and they were like, okay, go home. I thought it was a joke, you know? (laughs) And on my first week on Friday when they're like, okay, see you guys on Monday. I thought it was a joke. And so I never let myself get surprised by anything. I was, I, and you know, as I train kids now, I always tell them, do not be surprised by the intensity of the situation. If you're Mm -hmm. surprised by it means you haven't trained hard enough. You know, I preach that to the football players that I train. I keep preach that to to you know seal seal candidates I train, and so that was a that was a big one to help me get through was seeing other guys quit. Which you know, obviously, I'm kind of a jerk in that aspect. I, <laughs> I you know, it's I just I fed off it. I was like, all right, I got that guy's better than me, and he's quitting, and I'm still here. You know, short little fat kid 
ghetto. I'm still here. Um, and then I just never thought that anything we did during those first few weeks was really that hard. And so I couldn't figure out why guys were quitting. I was like, hold on, I'm totally prepared to be here mentally and physically. And these guys are quitting. And that's kind of a joke. You're to me, they were wasting their time. Like it was, to me, it was disrespectful, you know? And so you know me well enough. That's a big thing for me. And so I just, I just said, that's not going to be me. I, I can't, I can't talk to my brother and my family and tell them that I quit. And, and it just never entered my mind, you know, that's excellent. So the one thing, if you could choose one thing that separates a guy who makes it through the seals and someone who doesn't, because you said there are guys that are more talented athletically, maybe physically that are quitting. So it's obviously not that what's the one thing. Is it the calmness and the chaos or is it something else? I would say it's calmness and chaos, but it's also guys who, who don't make excuses. You know, every, every guy who you meet who, who, uh, who says he went to SEAL training or didn't, or didn't make it or most of them lie and say they did, um, if you talk to the guys who do make it, none of them have an excuse. Like, hey, I failed this. I'm just going to do it again and get it and, and get it and finish next time. Where if you talk to a guy who didn't make it, yeah, yeah, the instructors didn't like me or my thing was broken or, you know, my leg was hurt, it's excuses. It's just excuses after excuses. And you saw that in NFL football, mm-hmm. you know, guys who had all the potential in the world, but – Hey man, yeah, this coach don't like me, man. Or hey, yeah, I, the playbook, the playbook's stupid. Or what? it's always an excuse. Yep. If and the, I found that the guys who the guys who make it and the guys who are in SEAL teams don't make excuses because if you make excuses, we get rid of you. <laughs> if there's one thing I hate, and, and I and I think you know this, I think you you you've instilled this in me a little bit. I hate complaining so much. Yeah. I hate <laughs> when people put themselves in a situation and then whine about why things aren't working out the way they do. They're perfectly in control. You know, when it, I always say when you, when you decide to be a victim, it takes away your power to change. So when you're a victim and you're complaining, you're never going to get better. You're never going to uh, push it to the next level. And so it seems like to me, these guys in the, that never panned out, it's always somebody else's fault. They've never got responsibility. They're never taking responsibility rather for themselves and what they're doing. No, that's exactly. It's funny. Cause I give the same speech, obviously, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing a, a training seminars, but I always tell people that you have to find happiness and suck and misery. And if you can find happiness and suck and misery, you're meant for this lifestyle. And at any, any high level, you know, lifestyle, even in business, it's like, if you can look at the guy next to you and instead of making an excuse, just laugh and just go, this sucks. This is total complete (laughs) BS, but it's funny. You just go, guess what? I can't, I can't, I can't complaining is not going to solve the problem. Let's just fix the problem. You know, this is the hand we're dealt. I can complain and whine and, 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 and be a little girl about it. Or I can just say, hey, let's just, you know, head, head down, butt up. Let's go. Let's just get it done, you know. And that's the one thing that in the, in, the, in the SEAL teams, you're surrounded by guys like that. You know, you're just surrounded. And you usually have one or two guys who are like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And you, you just get rid of them. And we don't want you. You're not part of this club, you know. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that, you know, you get that little, t- you know, I'll, I'll call it this. You get that little uh, tingle in your in your heart when you see somebody quit and it gets you a little bit fired to keep going. Don't you think it takes it, it takes like a special breed, a little bit of nastiness to be a SEAL? I mean, I know it does in the NFL. It takes someone that wants to see people around them quit so they can keep going. Do you think it kind of ha- – is that is that a tenet of being a SEAL, having that mentality of just – that nastiness. Oh yeah. You know, and that's, that's the really hard part about being a seal is that when you are, when you have the gear on, 
you're expected to be a freaking lion, a pit bull. I mean, you are, you're a, you're, you're a pit bull and you're an attack dog on a leash. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, then you go home and the SEAL teams expect you to be civilian and be normal. And, you know, we guys get in trouble, you know, and like any like any other community, NFL, college football, whatever, because we're, we're pit bulls. And it, it's funny. I, I have to tell people that, like, hold on. I'm not Dan, the businessman. I'm Dan, the freaking barbarian who's pretending to be who's doing my best to be a businessman. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm still a barbarian. And so, yeah, the guys there, there's guys who are just they're beasts i mean they thrive on pain and misery they thrive in the most hostile dangerous situations i got a buddy of mine named timmy roble who's he's lives in colorado somewhere and you know he's just a he's just a country boy but i've seen that dude in the most miserable situations just sit there and laugh and you go oh my god this dude is sick <laughs> you know he loved it and yeah so being a seal being you know those those great nfl football players who jj watt etc you know yourself those guys, you're just nasty. Like I, I want to, I want to, I'm here to show everybody who the best guy on the field is right now. And I don't care whose feelings are hurt. And yeah, there's, you know, SEAL teams are like that. You're there. Every, every one of us are alpha. Every one of us is, wants to be the best. But it, the difference is, you know, instead of trying to show everybody who the best person is, we want to show everybody who the best platoon is, who the best fire team is, you know, who the, who the best team is, et cetera. You know, so yeah. you get, we get rid of a lot of the individualism. And you really strive really hard to like, hey, w- I want the team to be better. You know, we in the SEAL teams, you don't have to be told when you finish a run to turn around and go go run back to the last guy. You don't have to be told that. It's just you just do it. Mm. You know, you, you finish your run, you turn around, you run to the last guy and you run back with him. And you're not cheering him. You're not motivating him. You're doing it because that's what that's what team that's what teammates do. You know, it, to me, that seems so, so countercultural because right in, especially in America, we're so individualistic. We're so worried about ourselves. You know, in the regular life, we're worried, you know, we're capitalism, we're climbing the corporate ladder, we're, we're watching our own backs. You know, how, is it a process you go through or is it ingrained in you that you, you become a team in that environment? What creates that? Um, you know, the, 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 the atmosphere is created in SEAL training, obviously, and, and it comes from the instructors because, those instructors understand that when you graduate training, you are now a SEAL, and they have to work with you. And if they can't, if they didn't train you properly, it's their life on the line. And and so in the teams, you know, you you see it at football. Hey, we're only as fast as our slowest player. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Those are just signs on the wall sometimes. Well, in the SEAL teams, those aren't signs on the walls. Those are the facts. We are only as strong as our weakest person. We are only as fast as our slowest person. So mm-hmm. if that is the capability of the team, we either make that person better get rid of that person or accept that's what our ability level is. And nine times out of 10 for us, it's okay. We're going to, we're going to do all three of those. But the biggest thing is, is you can come down on the guy and et cetera, et cetera. But you, you that doesn't help. That doesn't solve problems, you know, and you, in, you know, you, the whole thing for us is solve problems. You're given extraordinary tasks, you know, climb an 18,000 foot mountain, go find out if there are bad guys up there, capture bad guys, bring bad guys down. You have two days to do it. By the way, oops, we forgot to give you food and water and go. <laughs> and you, you can sit there and you can go, all right, I'm going to complain about this and wine and et cetera. And, oh, by the way, we forgot to give you your winter warfare gear. So and it's negative 30. Or you just go, all right, let's go. <laughs> and that's what we do. All right, let's go. Let me get a few extra T-shirts. And oh, by the way, that goat over there looks pretty tasty. So let's kill him and eat him. And uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, okay, so all problems. Le- let's now that you've touched on that a little bit. Let's fast forward. You're out of budge. You've made the seals. Um, now you're working through this. Now, 
give me some examples. And you just kind of did some mentally, physically challenged situations. I mean, I remember you telling me some just crazy stories uh, a few years back. I mean, give me some examples of, you know, kind of something you had to push through as a team or as an individual. Uh, I remember the, the one story that sticks out to me is you've fallen off the back. Did you say you fell off the back of a submarine and or something yeah. and we're treading water for hours. Give me, give me something like that. Give me an example. So that's also the, you know, the, the, one of the major things I try to preach to these guys that get through their training is I tell them buds is easy and they laugh, you know, and, and, and when you're in buds, the instructors tell you buds is easy. Wait till you get to the team. And I always thought that was funny, et cetera, but it comes to reality. The day you step aboard, I stepped aboard seal team one cocky as hell. I mean, I ran a four minute mile. I was a beast on the O course. I could freaking do a set of 35 pull-ups. I was, I, you know, I was, I was beast. And you get there, and my first day there, they had me a mop and a broom. They're like, go clean up, new guy. And I laughed, and they were like, ha, ha, ha. I'm not joking. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, everybody here's a seal, stupid. You're the newest one. Go clean the shitters. And I was like, okay. So right away, you get a wake-up call of how hard the teams are. And then when you get into your – when you have to understand in buds, there's safety observers, Right. So, hey, the students, their body temperature is this. We're going to stop this evolution and move on. That's not the way it is in the SEAL teams. There's no safety observers. It is here's the training mission. Go. So on the submarine one, we were doing we were training for a, a very, very you know secret mission to, to go do some stuff. You know, I ran is always messing around and doing stupid things. So we were, we were doing a training mission for that. And when we launched off the submarine, the waves were perfectly flat. And so we, we got we got in our mission. We ended up doing a, you know, a, a dive. And during the dive, the current, we could really feel the current kicking up. And so I remember we swam so freaking hard, like me and my buddy Steve Percy are just pounding our fins to, to make, you know, and digging our fingers in the sand to try to pull ourselves. That's how hard the current was going. And we finally got to the objective, did what we had to do. And then when we, we, we recovered back on the boats, it was like, I mean, just, you're just, you're dying because you're, you're, I mean, I was pushing on my, it's called my man valve on my uh my my rebreather i was just pushing on the man valve i couldn't get enough air that's how hard i was working and i remember getting uh, you know coming coming ashore my rig was totally flooded and or coming on the boat my rig was totally flooded and i was just like holy crap i'm glad that was over and then we had like a 20 mile boat ride to go and by now the seas are just kicking you know and when you're in a zodiac when you're in a zodiac with four guys it's, it's pretty manageable but we're in a zodiac with three guys a piece so the weight distribution is automatically way lower so the waves, you know, the wind is in our face. So the front of the Zodiac is just coming down and bam, slamming and slamming. And there's hours of that. So anyway, we get back to the submarine and the waves, if you've ever been on a scene of submarine cruising through the water, when the waves break in front of the sail, that's bad to try to recover on. <laughs> so we, we recovered the first, we recovered my boat, um, came up. And when we came up on there, we always used hard glass, hard bladders for fuel. And we had gotten these experimental bladders that were soft bladders so that they'd be easier to store on the, on the submarine, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had one of those in the boat, and we're cruising along. Well, I was the driver. So as soon as we come up to launch, a Zodiac is 15 feet long. I put it up on the sub, on the sub, and then the wave dropped out from underneath us, and that Zodiac was standing on end, right? Wow. So 15 feet on end, nothing going. I could hear the engine. This last thing I remember is hearing the engine. And I grabbed hold of anything to keep me in the boat. And when I ripped that entire fuel bladder out of the boat, I went underwater because the next wave and the, the, the force of the wave drove me down probably another 10, 10, 12 feet underwater. And as I opened my eyes, you know, water hits you. It's the middle of the night. I see the submarine propeller going by. And I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> swim. <laughs> so I swam as hard as I could to get away from that thing. And I popped up about, you know, 10, 15 yards, 20 yards behind the submarine. 
And the guys saw me, you know, getting knocked off, and they're like, "Hey, he's in the water." Well, the bad thing was I had just ripped the fuel bladder out of the boat, so now the boat has no fuel. So they're oh. trying to still recover the boat, get fuel in it to come get me. Meanwhile, I'm floating. I'm just like cruising down, like watching the submarine go, getting smaller and smaller. And I had a, had a bright green chem light on me, and I broke the chem light and was shaking the air. And you know, they shine a flashlight. They're okay, we see you. But then they just keep going. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, all right. Cool. Well, then the submarine disappears, and I'm sitting there floating in the water, and I'm like, okay, I know that I'm about 50 miles offshore right now. I know that if I swim to the right, I'm going to swim to Iran. If I swim to the left, I'm going to swim to Saudi Arabia. Okay. <laughs> so in my, in my brain, those are my thoughts of like, all right, this, this could get really this, – this couldn't get much worse, you know? And so I just kind of treaded and sat there for a while. And then, you know, about an hour later, I see the submarine go by me. And it, but it's like, you know, it, it probably was only three or 400 yards away. But to me, it looked like, you know, two or three miles away. Yeah. I see, this, I see just the periscope go by. And I was like, all right, cool. They're coming to get me. We got, remember, how long does it take to make a, have a submarine make a turn? Right? It doesn't just turn. It's not like a, a boat. I mean, imagine how long it takes a boat at speed. So a couple hours go by again. <laughs> and I see the submarine go by me again. Now, it's, now it shoots by me. And I'm screaming, hey, hey, And, of course, it's a submarine. They don't hear you, you know. Um, and I'm like, shoot, this is not good, right? So I'm treading water. A couple more hours go by. And then I felt – I literally felt like somebody kicked me in the stomach as hard as they could. Well, what had happened is by then I'm lost men at sea. Like they can't find me, you know. Mm-hmm. So they pinged me. So they just used their pinger, ping. And that's what I felt. And that was like the lowest vibration ping they can do. Yeah, they pinged me, and that's that. Like, knock, knock, piss out of me. Oh. And uh, they they basically pinged me about three or four more times, and that's how they found me. <laughs> so, oh. so other how, than that, I was. So how long were you out there treading water? About three hours or so. Seven. Seven hours. <laughs> yeah. So you were, but pretty- I had a wetsuit on, so I oh. mean, I, I wasn't cold, and the only bad thing was many fins so i was like oh god this is gonna be a really long swim yeah <laughs> yeah uh, no no thing for for a navy seal but for an ex-nfl player i think he had 45 seconds i've got and i'm down so you beat me by quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> well the funny part of the whole story is is isn't so much of that like okay no problem so they recover me and you know we get down and i'm obviously really shaken up like okay i'm you know uh I, I never thought of quitting. I never thought of that. I was just like, fuck, man, if I swim to Iran, they're going to beat me up really bad, you know? So when I get aboard, I'm, I'm pretty happy, you know, obviously. And then I go down to the chow hall, and there's pizza there. And I remember starting eating pizza, and guys are telling me a story. And I probably get five minutes in the story, and this guy comes to me. He's like, hey, uh, you guys got to go. Your chow time's over because there's only like eight, four, there's only four tables on a submarine. And I was like, hold on, dude, you know what I've been through? He's like, yeah, there's 100 people in line. Get out of here. I'm like, all right. So you get humbled really quick back to reality. <laughs> That's that's absolutely unreal. I mean, you would think they'd bring you aboard and you'd be, you know, you'd be the talk of the entire submarine and you'd be the guy. But instead, you're like, okay, see you later. You just kicked it. Yeah, curb. but you got to remember, on a submarine, the only guys know what's going on are the guys, the captain, your your guys, and maybe the rescue swimmers and the guy behind the periscope. Everybody else is just they're just they're just driving a sub. I mean, they heard overboard, but they don't know who it is. They don't know what it's about. They don't even know what's going on past that point. You know? Oh wow. That's crazy. So, so, so full circle, pretty thankful for the, the buds training and then all the training you guys did in the seals. Right. I mean, without that, you're dead. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, that buds, the seal training does for you is it shows you exactly the capabilities of the human body because you are pushed 
to your limit and beyond. I mean, I, I never had a quitting moment, but I definitely thought of like, what am I doing here? You know, I had one moment of weakness and that was on Tuesday night at hell week. My buddy Carlos says he quit, you know, and we're at, we're at mid rats. It's like, you know, we get, it's called mid rats midnight and we're eating. And I remember just seeing him stand up and walk over to the instructors and start shaking his head. And that was it for Carlos. And at that moment I was in my weakest state because that was my best friend. You know, we had gone through boot camp together and a school together. And, uh, he was just a good, good dude. You know, he was just this, the most wholesome, honest dude I'd ever been around. And, uh, I, I, I never had a friend like that. Right. Cause I mean, I came from a really bad neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's just rough, man. And he was just like this awesome, honest guy. And so I'd never had a friend like that to see him quit in that moment. I had this moment of weakness for about two or three minutes. And my buddy, Johnny Rodriguez looked over me, grabbed me by the shoulder. He's like, Hey, knock it off. And I, I looked at him. He goes, knock it off. Get back in the game. And boom, it just snapped me back into, into reality. And like, all right, I'm here for a reason. You know, this is what God intended me to do. God put me in this earth to do this and I'm going to do it. You know, holy smokes. I couldn't imagine. So, and this leads me to my next point here. You eventually got out of the, out of the seals. I mean, what was the transition like for you? Why, why did you get out? And then kind of, you know, what'd you initially kind of get your hands into? Um, so, you know, when I got out, I had done, you know, uh, deployments back to back to back and, uh, you know, put my wife through a tremendous amount of stress and then, you know, kind of got embroiled in a, in a pretty nasty court case, which had nothing to do with me. You know, I, we were just me and there was 14 of us got embroiled in it and it was, it was popular media at the time. And, you know, it ended up turning out to be a situation with a government agency that was the people involved and they basically cast the blame on us and, you know, we had to go through a, a long process to basically say, yeah, you guys didn't do what you were accused of. But in the end, you know, the Navy being the Navy, you can't, you're never going to get away and, and say nothing happened. And so I actually got charged with posing an unauthorized photograph and using harsh verbal language to an enemy detainee of war. So that really, you know, put a, put a bad taste in my mouth. And, you know, at the time I was upset, you know, obviously like, oh, this is stupid, whatever. But, you know, now I look back and go, okay, it, it was meant to be. But basically, what happened at that time, you know, we were struggling financially. You know, California is a very, very expensive place to live. Even though we were, I was a SEAL and, you know, the top paid guy in the military, you know, we are, we make more money than everybody, basically double. We, I only made $46,000. And here I am, wow. in order for me to make any money, I had to deploy. Because when you deploy, you get separation pay. You basically get another $200 a month, which people laugh at. But $200 a month when my wife and I are eating wick cheese and free peanut butter and free eggs and you're this Billy Bad Boy Frogman is, is rough. And you're trying to raise three kids. And so you know, during that point, everything was going on and I got a phone call. And it was my buddy and he's like, hey, man, you know, I'm a contractor. I'm doing security contracting. And basically you do the same job you do in the SEAL teams, only we're going to pay you $1,000 a day. And when you hear that – it's just hold on, hold on. I I make fifty dollars a day. You're going to pay me a thousand dollars a day. And after doing all those deployments and being wounded and you know and and seeing what was happening, I, I just kind of thought about it like, hold on, this war isn't going to stop, and I'm eventually going to get killed. I just I know that's going to happen. You know that's the way it's going, the way it's rolling. I had some premonitions of my death, and I said if that's going if that's what the case is, then I want to make sure my family is taken care of, and you know. There's these guys who are tra- who who do the same job as me, working side by side with me, and they're making more money than I can ever fathom or dream of. And here I am, right next to them, and I make 
uh, an eighth of what they make. And so, you know, I, I hate to say greed, but really what it came down to is I want a better life for me and my family. So and, uh, oh, let me cut you off for a second because uh, okay. you just – you had premonitions of your death? Explain that. Yeah, so uh, I was tasked with going to the city of Ramadi and I was we were going to be the first uh, SEAL platoon to go there. And it was just weird. Like I – I just had these like everybody. I, every time I talked to somebody, I was leaving in days, right? Everybody I, I was talking to, I felt like it was the last time I was going to talk to them. And then you, know, you always have dreams of you falling off a cliff, and you always have dreams of you know your parachute doesn't open or whatever dreams every single person has. Well, my dream was that I got shot in the face, Oof. but my dream was that I was looking down at my own body. And remember, I had already been hit once. And I had had, you know, I believe a near-death experience where I, I believe I heard God's voice and his voice was different. His voice said, open your eyes and get back in the fight. Um, you know, the explosion went off in my face. So I started having dreams of me looking down at my own body. And the, the really the big thing was every time my daughter would hug me, she just really got really cold to me. But she would just run up at random, hug me and start bawling and just crying. And she was too young to know that I was leaving. I think she was like four at the time. Oh, wow. And so... It was just weird. And then my wife and I were, were laying in bed one night. And we're just talking. And she's like, you're going to, if you go back, you're going to die. Wow. And I told her, I said, I know if I go back, I'm going to die. I knew, I just knew it. I knew I was going to die. And what was funny is the guy that replaced me. So I told him, you know, I was, I had two choices. I could either reenlist and deploy or get out. Like it was that simple. And I was like, okay, if I reenlist and I go over there, season deployment, I can, I can get this, this $36,000 bonus which is big money, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I told, you know, my wife, Leilani, and she's like, you know, I think you should go and think about the contracting job because I was really debated back and forth because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a patriot. I love my country and I love I love do, working with the guys I loved. And so I just really thought about it, put a lot of thought into it, and I decided to leave the military. Well, the guy to replace me, his name's Troy, he ended up getting shot right in the breastplate in, in his body armor. But he's six foot three and I'm five foot seven. So that's where my face would have been. <laughs> Every vehicle that Troy rode in got blown up. It got so bad that people wouldn't ride in a vehicle with Troy. Like Troy would get a vehicle and guys were like, I'm not riding that vehicle. Because like, if anything happened, it was going to happen to Troy. Well, it replaced me. Wow. Right? And so I don't know if, if that was like awaiting me. You know, I, I don't know. But I just I think that I made a good decision. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and Troy lived, you know, he's, he, he just retired last year and had a great career, master chief. And, but I just, I, I seriously believe that I was not going because I was one of those guys. I'm not a war hero. I'm not some, but I, I, I don't hold back. I don't know how to hold back. And I always made sure that if my guys was in trouble, I, I went to their aid and, and I just know that I, I, I just, I, I believe in my heart that I wouldn't have come back from that deployment. So that's, that's unreal. Now, how, how many years total in the seals? Uh, total with 13 years in the SEAL teams, 15 years in the Navy. 15 years in the Navy. Wow. Okay. Yes, yeah, so you have to do two years, two years of training before you're a SEAL. Okay. Okay. Um, now, explain this to me. Now, your transition out, um, let's talk mentally for a little bit. I mean, what's the difference? You were talking about that, you know, that killer instinct. You, you're, the, you're an animal. You're a, a lion when you're in the, in the SEALs and you're getting out. And now you've got, you know, obviously maybe not a regular job, but – definitely more tamed down than you're used to. What was it like dealing with your family and friends coming out of the military? Um, 
believe it or not, I had a harder time dealing with people after my first deployment than I did my last. My first deployment, I came home and I was wounded. Um, and, you know, I just basically locked myself up in my room for four days and, and drank probably four bottles of Jack Daniels. You know, I didn't <laughs> want to be home. I had no desire whatsoever to be home. I was like this. I didn't think I was hurt. I'm like, I, I can still fight because just because I can't see and I can't hear doesn't mean I can't fight. You know, it's my mentality, you know. Not knowing that my hip was broken and my, my I had fractured some discs and you know blown my shoulder apart, I didn't know that. I just knew that I, I felt good. It's just pain. Let's go, you know. And so I didn't want to be home. So that was really hard. My wife had a really hard deal, time dealing with me. And when I when they called me up and said, Are "You ready to go back?" I was like, "Yep." And I left like three days later. And I don't think I don't think she cried. She was like, "See you later, bub." Um, wow. As I got as I did more and more deployments, um, you hate to say it, but it just became work. Right. It was just Mm -hmm. it just became work. And that's that's the only way I can describe it is we did so many missions. You know, I I, when I was up in Mosul, Iraq, I did over 300 missions. And at some points we're doing eight of them a night. Um, It just became work. Right. And you become so automatic as a SEAL. What people don't really understand is how highly you're trained that I'm a light switch. Right. Like you enter a room and it's full of bad guys and. You know, you, you, you get into contact with these bad guys. You enter the next room, it's full of women and children. You're like, hey, kids, calm down. Your hand lights and candy. And it's literally that fast. Wow. You know, of how you're, how well and how, you know, how, how, we, how we're trained. And, you know, that's the, that's the one thing that, you know, I wish people understood how many lives we did save as compared to how many lives we could have taken. You know, and, mm-hmm. and obviously taking lives is bad in, in any way you can think of. But I'm proud of the lives that I didn't take. I'm proud of the of the kids that that I that I was able to, to keep safe and et cetera, right? And mm-hmm. so when you're there, you're there so much, and it just becomes work, and you're just it's just like boom, boom, boom. When you come home, I would I would literally do the same routine. I'd tell my wife, "Hey, turn the phone off for four days. It's just me and you. Have family time." And the first day would be you know traumatic, obviously, and she we, we didn't sleep together because I would have nightmares, obviously, like I am. You know, one time I, I, I almost choked her in her sleep. And so things like that. So we got to where, okay, Dan's wow. going to sleep over here. <laughs> and then as Dan eases back into normalcy and there's no more body armor and gun laying next to the bed, then we can have family. And it took me about, you know, as, as I did it more, it took me about four days to just like, okay, I'm home. And boom. The bad part was uh, she made the mistake of taking me to Disneyland one time. And they had the fireworks show there. That was not that was not good for Dan. <laughs> wow. So the next night I stayed in the hotel room. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it was just one of those things where I had so I just had to sit down and be like, okay, I'm I'm I, I'm not good right now. And instead of me walking and probably hurting somebody, I'm just gonna sit right here until this fireworks show is over. And then I'm gonna walk to the hotel room and I'm not gonna leave this hotel room for a while. So wow. you know, it, it was a learning process. But as I transitioned back and decided to go into the contracting, I got lucky and the contracting, you know, started out very, very intense, and then it eased itself down as we went from a from an assault from an assault force into a protection force. And by the time I was, you know, kind of finishing the contracting world, I was a team leader down for Hurricane Katrina, and so we went down there, you know, under the auspices that you know the city was in chaos. There was all these riots, and we were, you know, armed and loaded. And what it was was it was just poor people barely surviving. And wow. you know, you end up going the second day we're there, like, hey, we don't need these guns anymore. So put them up and let's let's freaking help these people clean their houses. Let's let's do what we're here. Let's this is America. Let's help these people, you know. And so it, it was a great transition for me. And but it was hard, you know. And then when I got hired to come up here to Seattle to work on a you know a family security detail, I uh, I didn't have a I didn't have trouble 
as far as mentally and physically adapting, I had trouble tactically ad- adapting. And so we're, I'm here, and they're like, okay, I'm like, hey, what's the job? I'm like, okay, we're going to protect these kids. I'm like, okay, boom, where's the chase car? Where's the cat team? And they're like, no, dude, you're like going to take them to play basketball. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> no, 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 no guns, no body armor. You literally, we're going to take them to the store basketball. We're going to take them to Toys R Us and to the movies. I'm like, what the heck? And so <laughs> that was a hard transition for me because in my mind, I'm protecting these kids. Well, really, the protection is, is that nobody knows who the kids are. Mm. And that's the big deal between bodyguarding and executive protection is a bodyguard. Everybody knows that the, that guy's a bodyguard. He's big. He's gigantic. He's huge. But an executive protection specialist is invisible. And you're just a guy out at the mall with some kids that kind of don't look like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, you know, no problem. And if you don't advertise your schedule and you don't advertise who you are, and you don't give away your profile, people don't know who you are. And it took me a good year to really assimilate into that job. But once I assimilated into it, then it was then it became hard because now I was basically the parent or one of the parents. Um, mm-hmm. Because when people are that wealthy, they kind of stop being parents. You know, they you have nannies and you have security and you have butlers and chauffeurs and and so you end up being a parent to a child who just wants attention. And so I did that for six years. And, um, you know, during the same process, I opened the gym while I was, I did a lot of surveillance at schools. They just sit in the, in the parking lot surveilling. And, uh, I had an air card. And so I was like, Oh, you know, what's this CrossFit thing? And my buddy was like director of training and he's like, Hey, you can buy a membership and a gym and et cetera. And yeah, I started that thing while I was on surveillance. So, <laughs> wow, that's unreal. And, and, and I know you, you know, personally, and you seem like a pretty, you know, cool. You're a cool guy. You're relaxed. You know, very. It's very surprising to me. You know, just based on what you hear in the media. Um, you know that, that the people coming out of the military. You know, sometimes they're kind of crazy. And obviously, the movies that are coming out um, portraying Navy SEALs and, and other people in the military. You're just such an even keel dude, Dan. You're relaxed. I mean, your family. You have a great family. So, I, I mean, I, what do you think it is that's different about you? Because are there guys out there that get out of military, get out of the SEALs that, that kind of lose their minds or, or just can't seem to, to function in normal society? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I honestly, it's very hard for me because, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Nate Boyer. He just came up here to the Seahawks and he just got released. But him and I yeah. had a lot of talks about that because he's, he's really helping out a lot of veterans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really hard for me because I, I understand that those issues exist. I understand that I've had those issues. Right. But I also look at those issues from a personal standpoint and basically said, knock it off, like knock it off. You know, you have a family, you have a business, you have friends, you know, and I honestly believe that, you know, you have to put the bottle down first and foremost, mm-hmm. you know, guys, one thing, you, you know, as a seal, we drank hard. I mean, we drank hard, man. I mean, I'm sure the NFL, you guys, guys partied it hard and, uh, what ends up happening is, okay, it's okay to party on the weekends. It's okay to go get booze up with your brothers. But when you find yourself partying on a Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., we got a problem. You know, mm-hmm. we got a problem. <laughs> and either you look in the mirror and admit to that problem or your life's not going to get better. And those were, those were things I'd look at that luckily you know, I have the greatest, greatest wife in the world where she's like, hey, dude, knock it off. Like if this is what you're going to do, then do it, but we're not going to be here to do it with you. And, you know, I've, I've been in those situations more than once, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately for me is has kept going and I keep losing friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I lost all my friends in a helicopter. It was my entire platoon. 
And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was so hard to lose 21 of your friends in one day. Wow. Like just in the blink of an eye, you know, you, you lose them. And so I didn't, the depression didn't hit me for about a year. And, and then it just hit me in a drove, like, like a, like a, like a truck hit me. And that's why I did the Ironman last year was I, I, I knew that I was letting my health and fitness go away. I knew that I wasn't living the lifestyle and, and being the family man that I wanted to be. And, and so I decided to do an Ironman and raise money. And that was a great healing process because if you ever spent hours upon hours on a bicycle or hours upon hours swimming or running, you, you get a lot of demons out. And I think that a lot of guys, if they just started doing that, you know, you know, because in the military, at all aspects of the military, we're driven hard 18 hours a day. That's a normal job in the military. Well, then you get out and you're working an eight-hour day job and you get an hour break and you get you know, another 30 minutes, smoke break, whatever, and you're not challenged at all. And next thing you know, you're bored. And when you're bored, what are you going to do? You're going to find something to entice you. And I think that if guys found, you know, I, I like Ironmans because it's the closest I can get to being a SEAL again, right? There's no other, nothing I can do ever again that's going to make me feel like a SEAL. You know, I'm never going to be pushed that hard. And when I'm doing it, it is the most awesome thing that I can find. Like I'm just laughing and smiling the entire time, you know, and my wife on the last Ironman, you know, the Coeur d'Alene, it's my, I'm at mile 25 and she ran out to meet me to finish me off. And I, I just was like, don't get in my way. Like I'm here. I'm, I'm in my moment. I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm Dan right now. And I just, I, you know, <laughs> get emotional, but I felt so alive. Right. I, like I just, I felt like I accomplished something. And that's the thing that I think more guys need to do is find those things. Go climb a freaking mountain. Go get on a bike and just push yourself as hard as you can push yourself because it does make you feel tremendous, you know, and and I'm going to do another one now. I told myself I'd never do another one because it almost <laughs> killed me. But uh, now, like, I went on my bike ride yesterday, did 30 miles, and I just was like, got done. I'm like, man, I feel great. I just feel fantastic, you know, and I just think that's what more guys from military guys need to do is they need to do those things because – that's what, you know, you do 20 mile rucksack marches in the Marine Corps army, you know, you go on field exercises four days long, Well, you mm. can't just stop doing that. You're a Ferrari. You can't go from a Ferrari to a Pinto, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I do the same thing. I encourage people uh, that, you know, that are, that come to me with some of these questions, you know, what do I do guys that used to play in the NFL? You know, I, I tell them to do the same thing, man, pick up a hobby, go hiking, go biking, man, get into boxing, go do something that, that makes you feel alive and that, that helps you clear your mind. Great stuff from Dan Cirillo talking about his Navy SEAL career. Uh, this is part one, actually, because there's so much content that I decided I wanted to break this into two. Uh, Dan's also a CrossFit trainer, and we're going to dive deep into his CrossFit coaching career, uh, his football coaching career, and also his encounter with the Baton Death March in the heat. That should be interesting, as well as his opinion on the paleo diet as a CrossFit coach. Thanks so much for listening, and keep an eye out for part two.